Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, session 455. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 455 you're listening to. My guest today is producer, engineer, as well as front of house engineer, Josh Garcia, located up here in Northern California. He's worked with Depeche Mode, Leftover Crack, Me First in the Gimme Gimmies, and many, many others. We have the usual conversation, tracking the journey as I like to do, and I really think you're going to enjoy it. So, Josh Garcia, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about remote recording. So I'm bringing this up on this ramp because I'm actually doing a remote recording this month in September of 2023. I'll tell you a bit about that, but I wanted to discuss various aspects of it. First off, it's really, truly amazing to me, and I'm easily impressed, I know, how far we've come with remote recording gear. It's amazing. Really, really amazing. Now, pre-pandemic, I did a recording of a 20-piece big band in a middle school band room, and that was an impressive situation because we had borrowed a sound device's Scorpio, which is a crazy powerful, also very expensive, like 10 grand expensive out the door for the bass unit. What was amazing about that is, you know, obviously you've got the sound device's quality. Uh, You've got 16 built-in mic preamps right there. We were recording to two SD cards simultaneously, as well as the internal SSD. So we were making three copies as we were doing the recording. And then we were dumping to Pro Tools between songs and, you know, backing backing it up to there and prepping everything. Uh, super impressive setup. Then this time I'm doing it a little differently. I'm going to be with a jazz quartet, not a big band, but a jazz quartet at a high school band room. Going to bring the M2 laptop that I most recently bought, super duper powerful laptop. The interfaces for this are going to be a couple borrowed M108s, the Grace M108s. The guys at Grace are lending me two of those, which I'm very grateful for. Obviously, all the mics are going to run into there. It's going to be 16 tracks going into Pro Tools. I'm going to monitor through a Cali Audio INUNF system. That's that kind of desktop subwoofer with the satellite speakers uh, meant for desktop use. Trying to keep the footprint very small. I don't want to haul around, you know, uh, some big powered monitors. This is a smaller setup, easy to transport. So basically it's going to be the laptop, the M108s and the, the Cali system. And obviously the microphones, yes, plugging into the M108s. But what blows me away is just how powerful that setup is, I think that's truly amazing that you can squeeze that much power and sound quality in such a small package. Yeah, I know. Progress, right? With technology. So it's not all that different from the big band thing that I did. It's, you know, it's just a slight variation on it. But truly, we are at an amazing point in time where we do have these incredible products with great sound quality and such power in such a small package. So 
My footprint for this whole thing's gonna fit on a small table or a desk, and we're not doing headphones. Four-piece band, piano, drums, vibes, and Moog. Yeah, instead of bass, Moog, which is really cool. Three of the band members are in high school. One of them is uh, in college. Very young, really good, and I can't wait to play it for you. So when I have that opportunity, I will. But that's the basic setup that I'm going to go with. Moving on from talking about the particulars of that, the remote recording thing I find really helpful when studio availability does not line up with the schedules of everybody. And when you need to have a little more flexibility with the budget and sometimes recording in a different location, a remote location, I think really brings a certain amount of excitement to the recording. Now, I know a high school band room is not that exciting, but it's just kind of cool that we can be in a spot that all four of these members are super familiar with. Uh, there's a, already a relaxed familiarity with the spot for them. And I think that that's going to be great. You know, the fact that we're not using headphones, I think is also going to be great because they'll balance themselves in the room. And it's all going to be about the capture at that, that time. Now, if you are planning on doing remote recording, make sure your gear is insured, right? There's a working class audio topic for you. Make sure you've got your gear insurance in place because if you show up to a place that you're really not sure of the surroundings and you're not sure who's coming and going, you don't want to be in a spot where, you know, you uh, lock up for lunch and come back and find the room broken into and your stuff is all gone. That would just be devastating. So make sure your insurance is in place. Make sure you have a solid power situation. If you're in a questionable spot, uh, it always is nice to try to suss out the power ahead of time. So if you can visit the spot before you get out there, that's always great. Take note of what the power situation is. Is there just, you know, a few two-prong outlets? You know, is that going to be a problem? Um, I'm not an expert in power. I will say, you know, my limited knowledge of the world of power tells me that if there's uh, any chance you can just run all your stuff into one power strip thing, you know, like a Furman unit, and plug that into a single outlet, you're more likely to avoid uh, ground loops from different outlets with different grounding schemes, you know, on different circuits. And some of you who know more about power may call that out and say, no, no, Matt, that's not right. But that's honestly what I did for many years here in my studio is I ran off of one outlet and never had any grounding issues. And every time I use that method, now granted, I'm not using that much gear, but every time I do use that method, the grounding thing just doesn't seem to be an issue. I'm sure that ground issues can pop up in other areas. So anyways, that's that's been my experience with that. Couple other things, if you're gonna be doing remote recording, put all the gear together in, in a test run. Put it in, you know, set it up in a room, hook it all up, you know, make sure you've got everything in place and make sure that it runs. Once you do that, then take all of it, package it up, and make sure you put it in boxes or bags or racks and number the number the boxes and document the boxes. This is something I have experience with. Former WCA guest John Cunaberti and I did a one mic recording together up in Sonoma. We were going to a barn and 
we knew that we weren't going to be able to just kind of run down the street to, you know, a, a shop to pick up, you know, a spare mic cable or whatever. We had to make sure everything worked ahead of time. And we did exactly what I've just laid out. We tested it. We found some flaws, corrected those, then packed it up, labeled it all, and then set it aside and didn't touch it until the day we went to go do the recording. And the recording came out great. It was awesome. But that method of documenting exactly what it is you need is super beneficial. Now, if I get into an emergency situation, I'm going to be, be at a high school. More than likely, there's going to be spare mic cables, spare cables, spare mic stands. Uh, I'm not going to be really hurting too badly if I need something. Now, in the previous case that I laid out with John and I, we were out in the middle of nowhere. So we had to be extra prepared. Make sure you got your insurance in place. Make sure you have your gear laid out, ready to go. Make sure it all works. And uh, other than that, you know, I'm sure that there's much more to it that you all could volunteer if you want to email me, matt at workingclassaudio.com. But these are a couple things that I like to remember when I do remote recording, which I don't do that often. But I have to say that this system I'm putting together might end up being a system I keep a hold on to for these situations because it really brings a certain amount of flexibility uh, when you're talking with an artist. And, you know, I've got another setup with a, um, it's essentially, it's the same setup minus the interfaces. I've got a, a, a spare Avid Carbon. That's a great system for doing overdubs because of the zero latency thing. And, you know, those of you that love the Apollo system, that'll work too. Uh, but I like having essentially a variation on the system, you know, like a full tracking system like I just laid out, and then maybe an overdub system uh, where you just need one interface and you need low latency monitoring and all that. So many things to consider. And like I said, if you have any questions or you want to volunteer any information of your experience, I'm happy to hear that. Matt at workingclassaudio.com. Wish me luck and I will share the results of that recording uh, as soon as I can. So until then, that's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. 
And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You can talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Josh Garcia here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. So you're up in Chico, California. Yeah, it's hot up here. Yeah. it's. <laughs> I think it's here in Lafayette today, it's only going to be 83, but it's been hot lately. It's supposed to crack 108, I think. Oh, shit. Yeah, but I think, I don't know. It's It's, it's just too hot. Wow. Okay. Okay. We go by the water though a lot. Yesterday was my birthday, so we spent the spent the time on the on the lake. It was nice. Oh, happy birthday! Hey, thanks. Well, so let's start at the beginning because that's I think where a lot of people get the crux of where you came from and and how how you've arrived at this point. So, where did you grow up? I grew up in Long Beach, California. Actually, mm. my folks were split up, so I'd go back and forth between Long Beach and Orange County, and just kind of did that for most of my childhood surfing and skating down in SoCal. Yeah. Traditional SoCal upbringing, right? Pretty much. Yeah. Brothers, sisters. Yeah. I got two little brothers on my dad's side and I got two older sisters on my mom's side. Okay. So, all right. Big family. Growing up, were you in school band at all? You know, I wanted to be like in junior high, I wanted to be, and I was in the drum department, but I had some behavioral issues in junior high and okay. I got kicked out of some programs and that kind of stuff. So it was, it was like an elective. You had to be good. <laughs> you, you had to be on your best behavior. Yeah. 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 But I was playing the drums by then and me and my friends were trying to have bands and stuff and get really get into music in junior high. Yeah. Well, you know, skating, making bands, surfing. It's kind like, all. it's all the SoCal cyclical kind of path. It's a funny thing. Was there anybody in your world that you looked to that was a mentor for music? You know, at the time, not really. I didn't really know. Like my grandma got me my first drum set. She talked my folks into it because I was pretty rambunctious. And she actually grew up and went to school with Remo. Like, yeah. And so they worked out a deal and got me a drum set and was pretty stoked. And so I say like, I think fourth, fifth grade, I got my first drum set. Okay, wait. So wait, what? she's connected to Remo, the, the company? Yeah, yeah. Like, she's old. So she went to school with him back in the day. With the actual dude? With dude, yeah. (laughs) 
Wow. So she's like, well, get him a drum set. And she only knew Remo. So they got me a Remo drum set. And that's how I got it, my first Remo drum set. Was that one of the PTS sets, the pre-tune series? No, no. This was just regular heads back and forth, then top and bottom. But it was like, I mean, it was the cheapy. Okay. But it was rad. It's kind of where I fell in love with music, you know, and that. And then started listening to my dad's psych records and stuff and getting into that in junior high. And well, How did that progress? Did you start to think, oh, I want to be a dude in a band? I didn't really. I don't, I'm trying to think like, it was just kind of like another part of it. Like, you know, I'd like to go to the beach and I like to play music. It wasn't until a friend of mine, actually, now that I think about it, it was, it was my neighbor, Ryan. And he was an older kid and he was in high school and he was all into Maiden. So he had a big white Nikos kit set up like his thing, you know? So he kind of got, he got me into metal and Maiden stuff and, and showed me the drums were like, whoa, shit, you can do a lot of shit with drums and got me into that aesthetic i guess i was more in, impressed with i guess how much more you could do with the drums yeah you know i was just such a young kid i just was like i just want to play where did the awareness of audio start to take place that came in actually like in high school and with learning how when we started joining bands and playing in parties and stuff and having fun with music and recording the four tracks and playing tapes back and that kind of stuff and that was a lot of fun to me. And I, and then I was like, I got into a studio and we like, went to a real studio in Orange County with my band, The Carcinogens. We recorded a demo. Like it was, I think it was to one inch 16 track. I'm not sure. But the guys there were really cool. I do remember that experience. And we did it live, did it in like a couple hours, 10 songs or whatever. But that was one of the things was like, oh, this is, this is really interesting. This is a whole different aspect to music that I never knew I could do. And so that's kind of where I went down the, the rabbit hole of that. I actually found an internship in Los Angeles and I was driving from a music store in, in Orange County and interning at night in Los Angeles. And that was a pain in the ass because of the traffic and everything. I remember, I remember one time the woman who was the manager there, I called her, I was in deadlock traffic. I was like at least two hours out and I was just like, there's no way I'm going to get there. There's no way. She just yelled at me. You're never going to make it in this business. You have no business being in this business. Don't even bother to come again. <laughs> so I was like, all right. Do we remember her name? Yeah. Her name was Robin. Okay. We'll stick to first names. But I bailed on that. You know, it just didn't work out. And then I, uh, I met a girl and moved to Santa Cruz. Met a girl and like moved that. to Santa Cruz. Okay. <laughs> Pretty much like that. I was playing in a fun band, punk rock band. And I lived in the same complex as her. And so we'd always cross paths and then hand out flyers and yada, yada. She went to school up there and I was able to get another internship through a friend in San Jose. It was like a school kind of thing. So that was rad. So she went to school in Santa Cruz and I just chopped over the hill and interned two or three times a week in San Jose. She was going to college in Santa Cruz? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And just for the audience, here's a little bit of California trivia for you. The name of the mascot for the school that she went to is the banana slugs. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a big jump between Santa Cruz and San Jose. That's a long drive. It is a long drive. It was longer than I thought it was and wanted it to, to be, but I was really, really hungry for it. I was playing in a band. I was working in a music store and I was at a studio and that was my life. And that was just, it was music focused. Most of my 20s were very, very heavy music focused. Partying. 
<laughs> hard partying. Oh yeah, I'm sure. But, but music focused, you know, and that's kind of all I did. Skipped out on college and all that stuff, you know, and just went straight to chaos life, I guess. How was your survival then? Was it tough financially? It was so much easier then. Really? Yeah, actually, because my overhead was so much lower. My responsibilities were so much less. Ah. I had a job and I was teaching drum lessons and I was able to hustle and get by because I didn't have any obligations. So if something came up, hey, do you want to do this gig? Or, hey, can you play the show? Or all that kind of stuff really worked out. Now it's been really, it's been a lot more difficult these days because everything is so strict as far as responsibilities, deadlines, and what I'm able to pull off in the amount of time that I can pull it off, I guess. To yeah, make a big difference. yeah, it's easier being footloose and fancy free in your 20s. And Yeah, it's a trip. I wasn't rolling in money, but I wasn't starving and it was fine. It was having a lot of fun. But the the overhead, that's really what it boils down to. It's that just is like, what it boils down to. And it's taken me, I'm 45, and it's taken me almost 20 years to figure that out in this business. Yeah. All about the overhead. Absolutely. Well, walk me through. where How did this progress, and, and how did your audio career start to progress? Well, Santa Cruz is a small place, and the San Jose internship was kind of coming to its end. And what I decided would be good was to check out some spots up in San Francisco. So at that point in time, I had been hearing about Bay Area Studios. I had checked out the plant and put in some applications, and I got a uh, acceptance to an internship there. I, so I was living in Richmond, California. Yep. At uh, Burt Ramen with my friend Mike, he hit me up. I subbed for drums with him, and then I was actually homeless at the time when I came back, and he had a spot for me. So I was like, all right, cool. If I can stay in Richmond, I can get all the way over the bay, and I can get an internship at the plant. If I can get into the plant, I made it. At the time, was Arnie Frager running the plant? Arnie was in the Okay, for, yeah. and for the audience, I'll put a link in the show notes to Arnie's interview, which is a mind-blowing interview to listen to for me. Yeah, I heard that. It was a great one. So... Arnie's running the plant. You get an internship. Do you remember the other people that were there at the time? I can't remember his name. His name was Mike. That was the main assistant there. Mm -hmm. And he was he had done a bunch of stuff with Metallica and Mudvayne was there mostly when I was in that stint. They were there for like three months or something. Mm. But that was that was how I got fired, actually. I got fired from the plant. <laughs> I got good stories from that one. <laughs> Arnie was walking out of Studio A and I was vacuuming their busted-ass vacuum that had no was on the end of that it was just like the hole and it had like a little tube and you had to drag it so you literally had to be on your hands and knees to vacuum i think it was a joke it must have been and Artie comes out of the studio and hits me in the ass with the door and i fall over and he looks at me and he's like damn you really do have to start at the bottom around here and he just leaves <laughs> that was good i, I had to laugh at myself that oh was my pretty gosh. rad well how'd you get fired i apparently disrupted a session and this one was funny because I just, there's no way I did. I did they just either wanted me to go, but I had to go all over Sausalito for four, five different kinds of coffees and teas and whatnots for the various people in the room and bring them all back hot. And I did, I was successful and I was excited. And there was a little door where I knew their um, Pro Tools op guy was, or maybe it might've been Mike even, I don't know. But I knew it was a quiet door off to the side of, I think, yeah, the side of A, out of the kitchen there. I quietly opened the door and I said, hey, the coffees are here. Right? And you know, all nice and nice and quiet. And he's like, okay, cool. Comes out, he's like, dude, you ruined the session. They're all leaving. Wait, what did I do? He's like, yeah, you should have just waited. 
I was like, I don't, you know, apologize. I didn't mean to do that. I, I'm really, really sorry. And whatever I can do. And then I just got canned. And I was like, well, fuck this place. Wait, okay. So you said this to the Pro Tools op? Yeah. Kind of quietly? Yeah, really quietly. Because I, I was very conscious of that. At that point in time, I was like, okay, let's be respectful. And I, I wasn't an oblivious intern at all. But I prided myself about that, trying to be respectful of the artists. I never was, oh my God, it's so interesting. I was never like that, ever, ever. Anyway, so it was a kind of a funny thing. I, I was pissed for a little while, but then I just find it, at this point, it's hilarious to me. Yeah, I'm kind of angry. That's kind of some bullshit. <laughs> it was total bullshit at the time. Yeah, but but check this out. Immediately, the very next day, I was like, well, fuck, what am I going to do? That was the place. That was the place in the city as far as I knew. And then so I did another internet thing. I was like, Hyde Street. Okay, Hyde Street. I'll just go in there. It's closer. Cool. I'll check that. I can take the BART. Cool. So I took the BART. I went in there. Jeff Cleland was managing at the time. And I walked in there and asked him about an internship. And he said, can you start tomorrow? And I said, yep. And then I was in. And the rest is history. Brilliant. Yeah. Wow. It was awesome. I had keys within a week. And Do you know what year that was? It must have been about four or five, 2004, 2005. Okay. Because that's when I came up from Santa Cruz. Okay. Got it. And I remember like there's a, I started putting, being able to put records out from Hyde Street and it was like, I think like 2005, 2006, the credits were actually lining up. How was your experience there? My experience there was awesome. I had a great time. I jumped in the intern pool and I was just kind of all hands as much as I could and just absorbed everything as much as I could. What I liked about it, I've heard other people talk about it too. It's just, there's just so many people there. It's just such a community. That's the coolest thing. And I never had experienced that before. So that was like, this is my place. Then it was cool because the Studio D at the time, they had two rooms at the time that they were mainly running. There was the Studio D in the back and the Studio A, but no one really liked to work on that AMEC that was out there. And it was kind of buggy and weird. And so it was very empty all the time. So as an intern, I very I took advantage of that. I'd get off my shift and I'd just go spend time there throwing audio around and trying to figure out the room. Very cool. Yeah, I was, I was very lucky at that point. So you didn't have a proper education. Like you didn't go to any audio schools. You just kind of jumped in and was learning right on the job and learning from that position of being an intern. But did you find it difficult to be able to learn that way? Yeah, because I needed to try it to see what I, I didn't have the application. So I was very nervous to try anything because I saw it being done. Oh, you plug a U47 into an 1176 or into a Neve into 1176. That's a great sound, but I didn't really know why. So when I was doing those things, copying, I wasn't getting the results. Got it. Right. And so that was the thing. And I was like, well, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> but I did remember one thing was when I learned on the Neve downstairs on, on Hyde's Neve, that I cut my teeth on that and going to any other studio later in my career, thinking that I knew something really proved difficult because that thing is, I just, uh, that's when I realized, oh, you good equipment does matter to some degree. There's a definitely like, it was a lot harder when I was like on my friend's Mackie trying to do it in the bedroom. Like, wait, I don't know how to do this. This sounds like shit. <laughs> <laughs> kind of thing. It's just like that kind of stuff and just learning, learning like, oh, wait, there's more in depth. There's more to a lot of this. But I, I was really fortunate to work with a lot of different people and just kind of watch various ways to put records together. How long were you at Hyde Street? 
Well, I'm still there technically. I'm still on the staff. So since 04 to now. Okay, great. Yeah. Still got my keys. I actually just did a session there last couple Sundays ago. Yeah. Neighborhood's not changed since. I think it's gotten worse, unfortunately. I was there a lot. I would, I would get, you know, kind of bummed and, and sometimes it'd be late, late night, kind of, I was a late night guy there. And, uh, it, you go cruise around or, you know, I'd be like, this is depressing. I can't get this mix or this, this band is not good or whatever my reason was for me sucking. Then I would just go grab a smoke and take a walk around the block and be like, you know what, dude, everything is fine. We're going to go back in that studio and this is going to be good. Oh yeah. And, and just, just so we're clear with the audience, I've talked about it in past episodes. It's a fantastic studio with fantastic people. Yeah. But since I have been in the Bay Area since 1988, that neighborhood has always been, it's like the Star Wars bar. There's a lot of wacky characters and there's a lot of drug use. And unfortunately now there's there's a, a bit more homeless activity. I've never been fucked with there. Nobody's no. ever messed with me. And no. everybody kind of keeps to themselves. But if you're not used to that, it can be a little intimidating at first. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's just it. And it's always been that way since the sixties and seventies, even it's just, everybody's just kind of shoved that part of the environment of the city down there into that South market tenderloin area. But yeah, you know, yeah, I've never been messed with, but it is a crazy environment to make records in. Yeah. But they've really done a great job to the place. Jack has been managing it for such a long time now. And that whole back area is nice. And it's, you know, it's really comfortable. Oh yeah, for sure. Like I say, great people there and such history. Like you walk in and God, there's so many great records that have been made in that building. So you're there, you're working, but you live in Chico, which you're talking to me from, and I can clearly see you've got a studio there. So tell me about your setup at home and how you utilize that and offset that with Hyde Street and, and or your other projects. Well, this is like my third version of a home studio that I've had. This one is actually offsite of my house, which is nice. But COVID changed everything, like everybody else. I had a studio at the time. Most of my stuff was around the Bay Area, and so I just grabbed it all and took it home. And moving to Chico has been, it's, you know, it's, it's a distance for sure. But I've been really trying to focus on mixing and stuff and collaborating via online. We can do that so easily now. And yeah. it's just so much better and, than it ever, ever was. So basically, I do the thing where we go to the big band stuff down in the big studio, drums and, and rhythm guitars. I, I really like tracking live and like live rock bands. Mm-hmm. That's, that's one of my favorite things to do. So we'll just go do basics at, say, Hyde Street or other studios, wherever they want to go. And then I just bring the tracks up here and either work with the artist with vocals or if we had time to finish that kind of stuff. Mostly I'll do mixing and editing and overdubbing up here, though. Hmm. And that's, that's pretty much, much it. This studio is interesting. It's an interesting spot where I'm at. There's a live room attached to it, which is pretty big, actually. So I can track live up here and I got, I got 32 channels and I can, I can do it, but I mostly want to just, I've been really trying to focus on mixing and stuff and keeping it low and I don't have to travel so, so much. I mean, I enjoy traveling for work. Don't get me wrong, but to commute, I guess, to make it a regular commute is, is, it gets rough. You have a daughter. um, Yeah. And you have kind of a situation that I identify with a bit in that as a parent, who wants to stay close to your kid, I've kind of resorted to that, mostly mixing and mastering and tracking very little because it allows me to stay close to home and respond to, hey, I'm not feeling good at school. Can you come pick me up to picking them up at the end of the day, which if you're in a session, 
you know, it's impossible. It's like, how do I leave the session, get to the parking lot, get a spot and get the kids? It's like, it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. Yeah. And I bet there's a lot of other audio parents out there who deal with that. So that's something that we have in common. Yeah. It's a balance, man. It's, it always is a balance, right? Yeah, totally. But this spot that you're in, you say it's out of the house. Is it on the same property in the same area? No, Chico's pretty small. So it's a few miles away, but it's out by the airport. It's its own building. It's cool. It's a box. Yeah. It's, but I've got all my gear in here and I can stay here all night and make music and noise. And it's great. Since we're out in like an industrial park, we can do anything out here. Right. And then you can respond if you need to go and, and do kid duty. Exactly. Yeah. They're five minutes away. So it's a great spot. It's a great spot. And my wife, she's a professor. So during the school year, she's on duty. Yeah. But during the summertime, she's got a bunch of time off too. So it makes the environment that we have collaborating together, working works out really well. That's great. Yeah. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. Just kind of taking it back a bit to Hyde Street, how long did your internship last and how did you progress through that studio that was i think the internship probably was i don't know six months to a year i would imagine i was able to become like an intern manager kind of person that was in charge of all the interns because at that point in time we had six days they wanted interns and there was at least two shifts so we had a lot of people i'd say five to six people floating around mm. and sometimes more just depending so I became responsible for hiring, firing, and if no one showed up, guess what happens? I had to be there for it. So sometimes it would suck, but that was all part of it, and it was fun. And instead of getting paid, I got hours. Hmm. So I was still being an intern, but I was just getting hours. I was already working because I was doing live sound. That was my day job. Okay, I, okay. That was how I got by. Yeah. So I figured, okay, I can work during the day at the studio and then go mix rock clubs at night. So I got my first 
club was the Boom Boom Room. <laughs> oh, the Boom Boom Room <laughs> over by the Fillmore. Yep, exactly, exactly. So I started doing that kind of stuff and just hustling around, me and my bike and skateboard, and I just do that. It was actually worked out pretty well. Was there anybody there at Hyde Street that you really like looked up to to either emulate or be be a mentor to you or somebody that really kind of brought you a lot of knowledge or wisdom? At the time, the people that I, I latched onto were Matt Kelly was there. Oh, lunch. yeah. Yeah, and uh, Mike Wells, he was in that room. Yeah, and, yeah. Mike Wells, yeah. Mm, big love. Yeah, and, um, and, and, and I like to keep the audience kind of informed here so it's not all inside baseball, but Mike Wells, former WCA guest, unfortunately passed away I think it's been a couple of years now. It's been almost two years, yeah. Yeah, two years. And Matt Kelly, of course, has been on the show. I will put links to both Matt and Mike. Anyways, sorry. Tana, yeah, keep yeah. Going. so I, I grew up watching those guys and getting pointers off of them and listening to them help how they operated and started assisting Matt and Gabe Shepard was there too, actually, and Charlie Buter, actually. Yeah, there's. I mean, it was a crew. It was a great crew. That's great. It was great. a great crew. Yeah. Yeah. So those guys kind of showed me how to do it. And then, then once I kind of had the cojones, I started bringing in bands. <laughs> 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 we do late night stuff, you know, and like I had, you know, put the room back like nothing ever happened and that kind of stuff. Sorry, Jack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, sorry, Michael. I think Jack knew. You list Depeche Mode in your credits. Yeah, dude. That was a great experience. I think it was around. Oh, seven. I can't remember when that record came out. Whatever the year before was, I was down in Santa Barbara. I had moved down there. I'd gotten married and we had to move down for a family emergency. And so I ended up in a studio down there called Santa Barbara Sound Design, being an assistant engineer. And it was a beautiful studio, really, really beautiful studio. And Martin Gore lives in Montecito. So oh. what they do is they work at that studio for some of the record. And then Dave is in New York. They go and work in New York. And then Fletch is in England and they'll go to England and finish it or whatever. So that was kind of how their process was. Mm -hmm. And so I got to spend about three months with Depeche Mode making Sounds of the Universe. And that was an awesome experience. And I got to engineer stuff and I was working with Ben Hillier was the main producer there. It was an incredible experience for me. So you were living up here in the Bay Area, but you left the Bay Area to do that? Correct, yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. okay. Yeah, so I closed the door on Studio D. I had a little operation going out of Studio D, and I closed the door on that, pulled it into a house studio, and then got an assistant job at the studio in town. Tried to, and tried to do the business from Santa Barbara, but my client base, the people that I was working with, were all in the Bay Area at the very start of my career. Mm. So it's like I didn't stay there long enough to let the glue set, mm. I guess, so to speak. Yeah. And so I jumped into it, but then I was like, fine, I'm with Depeche Mode. This is cool. I, I've upgraded as far as I can tell. I'm at a nice studio at Santa Barbara, but Santa Barbara for a hungry engineer is not the place to be, I discovered, at least in my experience. Okay. It was a great place if you were established. Most of the people had their studios in the hills and the LA people would come up from there. It was really hard to be my own person there, I guess. And and this, the discount on the studio was, he gave me, oh, I'll give you a discount. We can do like $900 a day or something like that. I was like, my band has that for the whole record. I'm not going to spend a day. <laughs> Thanks for the discount, but I'm good. <laughs> well, other than that, I mean, Santa Barbara is a beautiful place. Oh, I wanted to stay there. Believe me. It's paradise. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful place, but it was a nice time. It was a good time down there. And obviously you left and you came back to the Bay Area. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was that was it. I came back to the Bay and started working at SF Soundworks. Oh, Tony Tony Espinosa. Yeah, yeah. I did a brief, brief stint there. So Tony had that spot, and then eventually, and currently, Women's Audio Mission occupies that space. Yep, that's right. That's right. I couldn't remember. Tony actually, he and I met a couple times, so everything I'm saying is based on just hearsay or just people talking. I understood, like, I think he made a bunch of money selling something to AOL, like a calendaring program. Yeah, he was a computer guy. That's as far as I know. He was super passionate about music and he made tons of bucks and he just threw it all into the studio and his studio was insane. Yeah, yeah. The only thing I didn't like about it, it felt like kind of chopped up. It was like the New York thing from what I understood. What's the New York thing? Just tight rooms. Like it's just kind of like (sighs) a a small place with a lot of rooms, but you're in a small place. Yeah. It's been ages since I've been there. Last time I was there, it was still SF Soundworks. And I went down there to visit Joe Ciccarelli because Joe was mixing something. And I had that relationship with Joe that I could just like sit on the couch and keep my mouth shut and listen and just kind of, hmm, what are you doing there? Hmm." That's cool. I'm not going to ask you, but I'm going to. I got to watch Russ Elevato mix a record there. That was cool. Yeah, it was an interesting spot. And Women's Audio Mission has been there now for quite some time. So That's a cool thing. What are you challenged by currently as an audio professional? I mean, after all this time, you have a bunch of experience and you've been at this a while. It's not your first rodeo, but it is challenging to some degree, right? Oh, yeah. No, it's definitely challenging. And I think the most challenging thing is is just surviving. <laughs> yeah. I have an old school aesthetic with it. And I think that that adapting to the new world, or I guess, if you will, is kind of not as difficult for me. But I think that balance has always been proven difficult for me. Mm-hmm. And it's always been a challenge. Work-life balance. And I know we always talk about that. And just, it's just, it, it really is a thing. And I'm just trying to still figure it out. <laughs> Do you find the work life balance thing challenging because of your own work ethic or because you get stuck in sessions with clients that you're like, well, I got to be here all day and my own work ethic. You okay. know, I, I have a tendency to always say yes to work. Yeah. And that gets me into scheduling conflicts that just put everything tight, tight, tight. Hasn't happened in a long time, but I can get myself in that more so when I was doing live sound. That was where, because that was half of my thing. I would basically do records and then when that would slow down and the touring seasons would start, I would do live sound. Mm. And and I always have that in my back pocket, but I'm really trying to stay away from that, at least until my daughter gets a little bit older and, and I want to spend more time with her now. And like a good friend of mine who I was doing front of house for, who got me a studio management job, actually kind of got me off the road right when we had gotten pregnant with her. He told me, he's like, dude, there's always going to be a door. And I was like, you're absolutely right. He's like, we've just grown up having to do this to support our family and kids. We don't get to see them grow up. So he put in a good word and they needed a studio management position over at uh, Motor Studios up in Bernal. And I slid right into that and that worked out. And so that on that aspect of things, I thought, okay, well, I can do this. I can manage a studio and have a kid and I'm right down the street and I'm in SF and everything is good and life changes. So Yeah, it's a work in progress at all times. For many people, I don't think you're unique in that way. No, I don't think. I I think it can be challenging for everybody. Really, I think it's a matter of finding the consistency in the income and the workflow and then 
finding ways to like integrate your family in and around that. So it's, it's a hard thing. It's, it's such a weird business and it's so unique. There's no, like some friends that are not in music, it's so hard to relate to. There's not one day that is the same. There's not one avenue. There's not one band. I can do it generally. We can do general ideas, obviously. Yeah, yeah. You know, but everyone's, every project has its own little special thing. And that's great. And that's actually what I love about this is because it's not the same thing. I don't have to go in and punch a clock and, and do that, which is fine, but it's just not my thing. I've never been good at that. I've been fired from every job that was like that after two weeks at best. Yeah, and you kind of have to just be constantly, you're taking in all kinds of work and some of those records or things that you do or projects, because I don't want to also include, you know, movies and games, but especially in the world of records, it's like, I mean, I've got some outstanding invoices out there that are kind of large and I'm going to be waiting like 30 plus days on some of those invoices. I think that's one of the the harder parts. It's like, all right, there's five grand. It's like, well, yeah, but you're not going to see it for however long. Exactly. And keeping it and making it stretch and yeah, doing that kind of thing. This is, is, I know what you mean. Marketing is one of my things. I think that's, that's one of those struggles that I have. And why is that? I don't know. You know, I think a lot of it comes down to, I haven't glommed onto the Instagram page and here I am thing. And it's just, I've never been good at that. Like if I ever was at the nearest party, I was the guy in the corner or something. You know what I mean? I just, I don't know why I'm a shy guy in those kinds of environments. Put me in a studio, put me with a band. Like, I love it. I'm super comfortable. You're in your good put spot. In, yeah. Put me in an environment where I got to pitch myself. I'm a mess. <laughs> I've really kind of grown into that over the years. And I've got this, this thing that I put out, like the minute I realized it was live on Apple Music, this thing I did for Alanis Morissette for the Yellow Jacket soundtrack. Yeah, I saw that. Congrats. You can bet your ass I'm going to immediately put that out everywhere. And, totally. And sometimes, and, and tell me if you agree or disagree with this, but I think there's a lot of us out there who are hesitant to put out the, hey, look at me thing, like a project like I just did, because they're worried about what their peers are going to think or what their peers are going to say. And, and I've lost that filter completely. I'm just like, I love y'all. And you're my buddies, but fuck you if you think I'm not going to like advertise the fact that I did this because that helps spread the word. And Absolutely. I, and I feel like we have to look at who our audience potentially is, which are, in the music case, other bands. And if you're in the movies, I mean, shit, if you worked on something, I'd be like putting it out there saying... I worked on this and other people see that. So they recognize that, oh yeah, that person is doing that. Therefore, maybe totally. we should hire them. So that's kind of my, my thinking is that people associate you with these projects. So one project that you and I have in common, I don't know if we have it in common on the same record, but the same artist, we've both worked with Peter from He, Peter, Who, Cannot, yeah. he, he Who Cannot Be Named. Of course, famous guitar player from the band The Dwarves. That's great. Yeah, Pete is great. I worked with him from working with Black, actually. And then he had to do some recording on, I think, Sunday School Massacre, I think was the one. Mm. I think, yeah. Okay. Uh, Pete. I mixed a record for him called The Humanitarist. Terrorist. I can never say the Humanitarist, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, it's, and it's also like half of the record of his love-hate record. So it's like been put out in two different formats. But Is that okay? Because I did see something. I was like, was that another one or not? Yeah. So I'm sorry, I didn't mean to take over there, but I mean like- No, no, no. no. Do you feel awkward in putting out the social media things? Yeah, I feel like I can do 
better with my time, I guess. You know what I mean? I have my list of priorities isn't that. And it's like, okay, well, I need to actually rewire this preamp problem, like that kind of stuff. It's like, I've got things like that and the house is a mess and my backyard still needs to get, you know? So it's like, I know I need to think about it as part of the business. And, and that's, I'm getting better at that. And I'm going to say that I did get educated with audio and music business, but I did it way late. I started in 2015 and I just, I graduated over COVID. And so that had got me a lot better perspective on it, but I haven't implemented as enough as I should be, I guess, because I'm overwhelmed, I think is, is, is a lot of it is I'm just overwhelmed with life Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as I think a lot of us are. So it's not just the act of doing that. It's just, there's all this other shit in your life. You know, it's like the house is a mess and there's all these other things I got to deal with. And, and I got the kid thing. And, 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 yeah. and it's, yeah, it's just dealing with life that goes back to that balance. How can I get my to-do list down enough to where I can focus on the love that I had for music and keep that love still with the business part of the music that I need to do while keeping it all balanced is just, it's, you need a team. I like having a team. <laughs> you know, and, and me and me and my wife now, like we're, we're a pretty good team with it. But speaking of teams, actually, now that I've just been meaning to get this in there too, is that we do have a little production team, which is starting to help us all out. We even two of my good friends. Oh, tell me about oh, yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. This is actually really cool. It's called the Retching Crew. We modeled off the Wrecking Crew. <laughs> and we got a couple of bands going right now. Run Motor Run. That was the last thing that we put out. It's my friend, Chris and my friend, Kevin. And Basically, Kevin and Chris and I, we get together and get a band that wants to make some songs and get them into a studio that they can afford and put a record out on a budget that they can do as best we can. Instead of trying to just go, oh, you got to do this and we got to do that. We just really try and produce it in a way that we're hands-on, but guiding more so than, you know, if you don't do the verse there, then it's not going to be good. Like, no, do what you're doing, but we're going to get you the quality that you probably wouldn't get if you just went into a place to record. Cause I still see that a lot. People just go to a place and record, which is fine. Mm -hmm. And, but I think this day and age and how much you can get done, I think if you just put a little bit more care into going into recording, you can get so much more out of it. That's an interesting perspective though, of what you're saying, because many bands, they just find a studio and then it's like, it's like they're going to get a haircut or they're going to go like... It's a service, yeah, to trip. Somebody's going to get their nails done or... or pair going to go buy a pair of shoes. Right. It's like you're just going to show up and you're going to take the house person and there's nothing wrong with that, as we all know. But there's a whole nother level to it that a band could be missing out on because they're doing what they think is the only possible thing to do. Yeah. And even that, that house person, if, if they had a tiny bit of information going into it, they can make that just as much better. It doesn't take much. It just takes a little bit. And that's what I'm noticing. And so, I don't know, we've been doing, we get the band to do demos in their own studio and pretend that they are recording, you know, and that kind of stuff. And we can bring in little rigs and little eight channel rigs and basically do rough demos and listen to the stuff. Is that the right drum pattern? Do you really like that? What if you tried this at the verse? Oh yeah. Okay, cool. Do that for a couple of times and then develop the songs a little bit. And then we go and spend a day and kick ass and everything sounds great. And we all know what we're supposed to do. And then that's to me is the, is way better use of the time than trying to figure out why isn't that pattern not working? Does this solo right? And all that shit that should have been dealt with a long time ago, but it still, it still happens. It's crazy to me. It still happens. 
but bringing your expertise to artists in that capacity because you and this crew of people that you work with can bring that to the table and really help somebody like talk about wasting time. I mean, I think that there's there's a lot of bands out there that spin their wheels and they just kind of put out stuff because they can. But it's just, had they devoted the time to hiring like a crew like yours, it can come out so much better. They really can. And it's fun. And I think it, it puts the collaboration back into it as well, which I, again, like back to the high street stuff is where I kind of come from. And I, I, I really like collaborating and just all being there to help each other make something better. That's, yeah. that's it. We can all help each other make something better. I kind of loosely do that sometimes. Like I'll be working with a band that I'm mixing and they're talking about their next recording. And I'm like, you know what? You should go see this producer friend of mine and get everything tracked there and then send it all to me and I'll mix it. And then I'll send it to, generally I work with Justin Perkins for mastering oh, yeah. uh, when I'm not mastering, if I'm mixing. But then again, I've got other mastering engineers that I, I'll pull up like Kim Rosen or, or David Glasser. But I find that in getting bands to like seek out other pros helps make their end product that they bring to me much easier to mix. That's a good call. Yeah, yeah. That's a good call. It's kind of I selfish, mean, really. I'm just trying to get better tracks. <laughs> I mean, but but it's really hard to do good with tracks that are not good, and it and it really is, and it makes our job really hard. And and when I I get embarrassed, I still mess up all the time. I won't say names, but I mean, there's tracks that I've done it, and I'm like, oh, I'm glad I'm mixing that because I know what's happening. I was like, I can't believe that happened. But, you know, it's just mistakes that we learn. I'm not perfect. I learn something every time I walk into the studio and I don't do it the same. Maybe that's a bad thing or it's a good thing, but I don't, I go with what the vibe is, what the band is, what we're, what song we're trying to get for, what vibe we're trying to do. I don't have a system. I don't have a go-to, I guess, if you will. You know, there's going to be a, a fair amount of up-and-comers listening to this, whether they listen to it in a few weeks when it comes out or years from now. So based on your experiences, good and bad, do you have any advice to offer to the up and comers in terms of like something you feel passionate about that you would relate to them? Love it first and love music first and just keep at it. I know that that's kind of like cheesy cliche advice, but it, it really is. And that was the best that I could have gotten when I was coming up on it. It's like, if you don't, if you don't have a love for it, you're never going to want it enough, I don't think, to get good enough to where you can enjoy it. And enjoying it is the payoff. Yep. The paycheck or whatever is that to me is that's the icing on the cake. That's the survival part. But the enjoyment of what I've done when it's something good and you get a good song and a good band and a good room and everything's just jamming. And that's just like you get the hair comes up, you know, you're that's that's the time. Oh, this is why I do that. Mm -hmm. This is why I struggled so hard all those years before. I think that's, that's it. Just kind of just keep going at it. Well, the thing I'm going to latch on to and what you just said that I, I feel passionate about is just staying with it. Just like not quitting. Yeah. It may get really rough, right? But oh, yeah. there's going to be good times and bad times, but just staying in the game and keep plowing away, assuming you love it. If you don't, then maybe you should get out. But if you love it, just keep going because eventually good things will come and you'll have some successes for yourself. Yeah. And small goals make big goals and let those little successes be big successes. And they all kind of add up. 
if you want to track a band, finally track a band, finally track a band good. You're like, okay, I got tracked a band good. I've got that off my off my list. Now I want to track a string section. I've never done that before. Kind yeah. of do that. Learn that way and kind of get the vibe of of how that goes. Well, for the audience, I'll put in the, the show notes your website, which is jgproductions.com, so people can check you out and uh, see the work that you've done and reach out to you if they if they want to. Yeah, please. That that's definitely. I mean, mixing and, and production services, I'm I'm totally available for. And actually, one thing would be interesting is that I still have a place to stay in Los Angeles. So what I'm going to try and do this next year, basically, I'm going to try and spend some more time down there, off and on. So if anybody's down there, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's a hop, skip, and a jump away from us. <laughs> Pretty much these days. Yeah, I mean, hop on a plane in Oakland, and you're like you're in Burbank, and in, in, in a short exactly. period of time. Exactly. This has been fun. Cool. It's going down memory lane and shit. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, I really appreciate you uh, being generous with your time and and sharing this with me. I appreciate this. Thanks again, and you take care. Take care, man. All right. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Josh Garcia here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Want to remind you, if uh, you like the show and you like what's going on here, tell a friend, tell a fellow audio professional what's going on here and encourage them to tune in. And if you have time, leave a five-star review at your podcast aggregator. See how I snuck that in? Okay, well, that's it for me today. Want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the great voice of Chuck Smith at the top of the show. You can always connect with me on LinkedIn. And if you have a question, feel free to reach out, matt at workingclassaudio.com. Until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware... Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio... This is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>